Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to add my amen to that prayer we just collectively offered to you, that song that petitions your spirit to work in our hearts and to, to fan the flames of love for Christ, to teach us to hold to the cross, to teach us to trust you. Lord, we do come recognizing our need, and, and we also come confident that you are a God who answers prayer. You are a God who delights to give yourself to your children. And so we come hungry and expectant and deeply grateful that we can come to you in the name of Jesus this morning, and we can open up this precious gift of your word and be taught and be fed and be instructed and strengthened in our faith. So we pray for you to work among us now for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue studying through Luke chapter 11 this morning. You can open your Bibles and turn there. It's fitting that so many of the songs we've already sung this morning really are prayers to God, prayers of praise, prayers of petition. We are intentional about including prayer in our service. We pray for the advance of the gospel. We pray over the teaching and preaching of God's word. We pray collectively for our response as we go from uh, the gathering of, of the saints and out into the world. And we are hoping that this prayer is also something that marks your daily life as a Christian. How you pray actually expresses your theology. That's what prayer is. It's a practical expression, for better or for worse, of what it is that you actually believe. It comes out in how you pray. How you pray shows what you believe about prayer. And even more importantly, it shows what you believe about God. Which means that if we're going to pray rightly, if we're going to pray effectively, if we're going to pray in a way that pleases God, then we need to have right thoughts about God. We need a theological foundation for prayer. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 11. Jesus knows that prayer thrives when we rightly grasp the goodness of God. Following the Lord's Prayer in verses 1 through 4, which might be better titled the Disciples' Prayer, as Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, he continues in verse 5. And he says to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In our text today, Jesus is continuing to teach us about prayer. Last week in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, we learned how to pray. It's the kinds of things we should be praying for. But as Jesus continues, he tells us why we ought to pray. He gives us a foundation, an incentive 
an invitation to pray. He gives us two reasons why disciples ought to pray. And the first we see in verses 5 through 10. We pray, number one, because even bold requests are answered by God. That is something that ought to move us and spur us on to pray. We pray because even bold requests are answered by God. In the Lord's Prayer, we're reminded that God's name is to be hallowed, that he is holy, he is awesome in his glory, magnificent in his splendor. He is the transcendent God who is from beginning to end, and there is no one like him. And that is true, but we must not begin to think that God is somehow unapproachable or that we should be hesitant in coming to him in prayer. Jesus tells this little miniature story, a parable, about the shameless audacity of a needy neighbor, verses 5 through 8. The setting for this story is, is travelers late at night who arrive at this man's house. This happens apparently after dark. It's midnight. And this might seem a little strange to us, but keep in mind, in, in this culture, in this society, their inns were rare, and the inns that did exist weren't the kinds of places where many people would, would want to stay. There was a, a custom of hospitality. It was expected that those in these regions would welcome weary travelers into their homes. It was, a, it was something that reflected not only on the individual showing hospitality, but something that reflected on the whole community. You didn't want to be known as the kind of town, the kind of city that wouldn't welcome travelers. And apparently, there's, Jesus paints a hypothetical scenario about travelers arriving late at night. Maybe they were traveling after dark because it was cooler. Maybe it just took them longer than they thought to get there. But they arrive late at night, and the problem is there's no food in the house. And again, remember, in this day, people baked their bread on a daily basis. They didn't have refrigerators and deep freezes in the garage where you could heat up a couple corn dogs or whatever it is you might have, you know, for emergencies that's in the freezer. And it's not like they could go down to the grocery store or the gas station even and pick something up. So if someone arrives at your home and you have no food to offer them, you're unable to fulfill your duty, your obligation to be hospitable, you're kind of up a creek and without a paddle. It leaves you with a choice. You could either choose to be a bad host and offer no food to your guests, therefore bringing shame upon you, shame upon your family, and shame upon your community. You could be a bad host, or you could be maybe a nuisance to your neighbor. And in the scenario that Jesus paints, that's exactly what this hypothetical man decides to do. He'd rather bother his neighbor than fail his guests. Jesus describes the nerve of this man in verse 8. He says he's going to get what he asked for, not because of the friendship he has with this neighbor, but specifically because of his impudence. This is a tricky word to translate. It's actually only found here in the entire New Testament. ESV translates it impudence. The New American Standard Bible renders it persistence, refusing to take no for an answer, insisting on getting what you're looking for. But I like how the NIV translates it as a shameless audacity. Think about how you would feel if I showed up at your house at midnight and knocked on the door and said, hey, I need to borrow something. That's pretty bold, isn't it? What's bold is not so much what he's asking for. I mean, under normal circumstances, to give a few of these small little loaves, they're no more than a glorified, you know, roll. That would have been no big deal. And, and the whole community had, had a vested interest in making sure that travelers were welcome and that you know, their city had a good reputation for hospitality. It was understood that they would help each other out in these kinds of situations. That's not what was so bold and audacious. It's the timing of it. It's coming at midnight. 
That's something that was a little bit surprising. And so this friend may have many reasons to say no. We see these reasons in verse 7. Do not bother me. It's clearly a bother to be interrupted when you're already asleep. It's not the right time to go knocking on doors. He says, the door is now shut. To get up and unlock the deadbolt and to move this heavy iron and wood door would have not only taken time, it would have made a lot of noise. He says, the kids are already with me asleep. Many people lived in a single room home. There would have been maybe a large mat where you had multiple people sleeping. For him to get up, wake up the family, step over everybody, trip over people in the dark, and then open up the loud door and then rouse up some food to give them, that would have been incredibly inconvenient. So there's a lot of reasons why the neighbor might not have asked in the first place. It's no surprise. And there's a lot of reasons why, why the occupant of this home might have an incentive to say no. Nevertheless, he gives him everything he asks for because of his impudence, his shameless audacity. It's not because of some great love he has for his neighbor. It's basically the best way to make this all stop and make the noise go away and keep him from knocking and get back to sleep. The best way is just to give him what he wants and get him off your porch. That's really what's going on here. This man who's being awakened in the night has no energy to argue He says, I'm already awake. This is already an interruption. I may as well get this over with. And then you don't knock on somebody else's house and wake them up too. So why does Jesus tell this story? Well, in this scenario, the one asking gets what he needs. Despite all the reasons he might have not to ask, despite all the reasons the neighbor might have to say no, nevertheless, he gets exactly what he is asking for. And the, the implication here is if that situation worked out, if this neighbor got what he was asking for and, and the, the, the occupant of the house, the sleeping neighbor, was willing to say yes, if that situation worked out, how much more might they expect God to answer their requests? Jesus gives us this application. He says in verse 8, I tell you, I tell you. He says, here's the point of the parable. Here's why I'm saying this. Here's how this applies to you. He says, you should ask like this man. Verse 9, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is telling them, you should pray. Because bold prayers are answered by God. So don't hesitate to come to him in prayer. Though he is high and lifted up, though his name is to be hallowed, there is never a time where you cannot come to him. Unlike your neighbors, God never sleeps. Unlike your neighbors, God has no lack of resources. And unlike your sleeping neighbor in the middle of the night, God is the one inviting you, instructing you to come to him. You're not imposing. So ask boldly. There's three verbs that pile up here to make Jesus's point. He says you should ask this, re- this reference is prayer, where we come to God with our petitions, asking him to meet our needs, both physical and spiritual. We see this in, in the model prayer that Jesus gives. In verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. There's the physical needs. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. There's the spiritual needs. We should come and pray and ask God for those requests. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Daily bread, forgiveness of sin, God's protection and provision spiritually for what you need. Ask and it will be given. He says, seek and you will find. 
This idea of seeking has to do specifically with seeking God and seeking his kingdom. We're told to pray that way. Your kingdom come, verse 2. We're instructed to align our desires with God's and to pursue the knowledge of God, to pursue nearness to God, to pursue understanding who God is, to pursue God and his will in all things. We are to seek him and pursue him. It's like God says through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Ask for what you need. Seek God and his kingdom. Jesus continues to pile up these verbs. He says, knock and it will be opened to you. This is descriptive of entering into the very presence of God. We seek to draw near to him. As James tells us, draw near to God, James 4, and he will draw near to you. We'd seek to draw near to God, to enter his presence and to receive his blessings. And Jesus is saying, listen, God is not going to hold you at arm's length. All three of these verbs are imperatives. They're commands. These are things we are called to do. Things that God wants you to do. He wants you to ask. He wants you to seek. He wants you to knock. So do not blame your lack of prayer on somehow assuming that, well, God doesn't want to hear from me. I'm sure he's got a lot on his plate. That's not true. God does desire to hear our prayers. He is not unapproachable. He is not irritable. He invites us to come and pray. Likewise, don't blame your lack of prayer on assuming that God doesn't desire for you to pray because he already knows what you need and therefore prayer is somehow redundant or unnecessary. I mean, God is sovereign. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Does he really need to hear from us? Some may mistakenly think that the sovereignty of God renders prayer irrelevant, but that sort of logic, as much as it may make sense to you, it actually ignores the clear commands of Jesus. Jesus commands us to pray. These are imperatives. Later, Jesus' half-brother James would write, sometimes you have not because you ask not. These are imperatives. Ask, seek, knock. All three of these verbs are also in the present tense, which indicates it's not something that we just do one time. It's something that is always relevant. It's always time to ask. It's always time to seek. It's always appropriate to knock. These are things that are repeated, even things that are ongoing. There's a continual obedience to these commands that is expected by our master, Jesus Christ. Like Jacob in the book of Genesis, who wrestled with God all night until he experienced the blessing. Like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, who is praying year in and year out, seeking God for the blessing of a son. Like Jesus in the garden who labors in prayer through the night, seeking not his will, but the will of his father. There's an ongoing aspect to prayer. This exhortation to pray is paired with a promise. And it's a promise that is repeated for emphasis. In verse nine, he says, it will be given to you, you will find, and it will be open to you. And Jesus repeats it in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus urges us to pray, and he promises us, he assures us that such prayers, prayers of obedience and faith that are bold and audacious in coming into the presence of God and making our requests known, seeking him, drawing near to him, Jesus underscores the fact that everyone who does this can expect to receive a response from God. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. 
It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian five minutes ago or if you've walked with God for five decades. It doesn't matter if you're spiritually mature and you're at the top of the mountain and you're seeing all this victory and joy in your life or if you are struggling and wrestling with doubt and with sin and you are weak in your faith. Jesus says everyone who comes to the Lord in prayer can expect him to respond. Now, this may raise a question. Does this mean that we always get the answer that we want? Well, Jesus didn't always get the answer, did he? In the garden, he prayed, Lord, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The father said no to his request to take the cup, but he said yes to the request to fulfill his will. We find in the life of the Apostle Paul, he prayed on three separate occasions, setting aside time to devote himself to to urgent and, and laborious prayer. Lord, take this thorn from my flesh. And God said no. He said he would provide grace, grace that was sufficient for him in his weakness, but he did not remove Paul's thorn in the flesh. So if Jesus didn't necessarily get everything he prayed for, And if Paul didn't either, then we shouldn't expect that should be the case for us. You might say, well, how does that fit with this promise? How does that square with what Jesus is saying in Luke 11? We need to understand this is a general principle, but it's not one that is without any qualifications. What are a few qualifications we might add to this assurance that Jesus gives? Well, one is that we need to remember that our request may not be something that is within the will of God. Remember, we're supposed to pray, according to verse 2, your kingdom come. That is a prayer of submission to God's will and his purposes for his glory. For example, I wonder if the disciples or if Jesus' friends, remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, or maybe Jesus' mother, Mary, I wonder if any of them prayed for deliverance and protection for Jesus after he was arrested. We're not told that sort of speculating here. But how could they not have prayed for that? The one that they love, their son, their friend, their master, their teacher, the one they believe to be the Messiah, how could they not, in their fear and in their confusion, have cried out to God and asked that Jesus would be protected and delivered from the hands of these evil men? Aren't you glad that God said no to those prayers? This text is not a promise that our will can somehow override God's perfect and eternal will. There may be times where we don't get the answer that we want in specifics because our will is simply not aligned with God's. And that may be an innocent thing, but sometimes there's more going on. Sometimes our prayers go unanswered because they're actually self-centered and not God-centered. We talked about this last week in the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is a God-centered approach to prayer. But as James reminds us in James chapter 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sometimes our prayers are selfish and self-centered and tethered not to a consuming desire for God's glory and his will to be accomplished, but rather tethered to selfish desires to feed our flesh even idolatrous desires. And God does not say yes to those kinds of prayers. We're told in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When our heart is not aligned with God's and is self-centered, 
we cannot be guaranteed that we will receive everything we ask for. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. And again, isn't that what we see with Jesus praying in the garden? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God said yes to the son's prayer to accomplish his will in the best way possible that would maximize his glory. But the general principle, while we can add these exceptions, we can add these qualifications, nevertheless, I don't want to take away from something that Jesus really is saying. God answers prayer, and that is a general principle that we ought to grasp onto, something that's to be believed and rejoiced in that should incentivize us to pray, to pray bold prayers because we believe God answers prayers. Yes, we can come up with several unanswered prayers in the Bible, perhaps even some unanswered prayers in our own lives. But the long list of prayers that have been answered throughout history is so long we cannot comprehend it. God delights to answer God-centered, faith-filled prayers. And Jesus urges us, therefore, to pray with boldness. We pray because even bold requests are answered by God. There's a second reason Jesus gives us to pray. This promise of answered prayer is actually grounded in a premise, a theological premise. And that's point number two this morning. We pray because of the surpassing goodness of God. We pray because of the surpassing goodness of God. Look in verse 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus makes a comparison here between God, our heavenly father, and earthly fathers. And it's a comparison starting with earthly fathers from the lesser to the greater. To give a serpent or a scorpion to a child who's asking for a meal, asking for a snack because they're hungry. That's not just a denial of their request. It's a reversal. This is kind of a shocking illustration that Jesus uses. Instead of giving something good to give a serpent or a scorpion, these are symbols of evil. Instead of offering help, such a father would be doing harm. Instead of providing something that gives life, he is handing his child something that deals out death. And this is unthinkable. Human fathers don't do that. And neither does our heavenly father. His goodness far surpasses the best of men. Psalm 119 verse 68 says this, encapsulating this theology of God's goodness perfectly and succinctly. You are good and do good. That's a verse all of us should be able to quote. You are good and do good. The psalmist is capturing the goodness of God, both in the sense that he is good in his nature, in who he is, but also good in his works. You are good and you do good. Goodness is what God is and goodness is seen in what God does. And this goodness is not because God's works conform to some external standard or law. God's works are good because they manifest his perfect character, because he is good. And God is completely free in this goodness. This goodness is not constrained by any law or rule outside of himself. And his goodness is definitely not constrained by our prayers. God is good in and of himself. 
The promises that God makes come from his own choosing. They flow from his goodness. His plan of salvation, the best gift that God gives in giving us his son, that comes from his own good pleasure. His goodness flows from him the same way that light radiates from the sun. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus when Moses made a request to God? He asked that God's glory might be seen. He says, show me your glory. And God answers by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you. His goodness describes the essence of who and what he is. The Puritan Stephen Charnock in his work called The Existence and Attributes of God points out that this goodness is part of what makes God God. It's part of what makes him holy and unique and different and separate from anyone and anything else in the universe. Charnock writes, only God is originally good in and of himself. He's not like creatures who may be good, but we get our goodness from something else. If you say someone is a good man or, or that's a good woman, it's because something in them reflects God. Something in them is submitted to God's will. It's a goodness that comes from somewhere else. But only God is originally good. Secondly, Charnock says, only God is infinitely good. We may speak of a good meal or a good story or a good work, a good deed, but only God is infinitely good. He is boundless and limitless and beyond comparison in his goodness. Only God is originally good. Only God is infinitely good. Charnock isn't done. Only God is perfectly good. There is no corruption. There is no imperfection in him. It is a pure and holy goodness that is unmixed. It is without defect. Only God is perfectly good, and only God is immutably good, meaning that he doesn't change. God cannot increase in his goodness. He cannot grow in his goodness. And he is obviously incapable of diminishing or lessening in his goodness in any way. God is originally good, infinitely good, perfectly good, immutably good. The goodness of God is his glory on display, showing his moral perfection, his benevolence, his kindness. Because God is so good in his nature, this goodness is manifested in his works. It spills out in everything that he does. It's expressed in his generosity and kindness. It's seen in his inclination, his disposition to bless and to benefit his creatures. He is a benevolent God. This goodness is shown to all in some measure. Even unbelievers experience the goodness of God. Consider Paul's words to the idol-worshiping people in Lystra in Acts 14, 17, Paul says, speaking of God, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The goodness of God is experienced by all who enjoy his provision in any sense. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Jesus says, when you treat people who are your enemies with kindness and goodness, you're acting like your heavenly father. You're being like him. Jesus says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There is a certain measure of God's goodness that is tasted and seen by all of his creatures. Psalm 145 verse nine says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. But this goodness of God that is perfect and infinite 
This goodness is expressed especially to his children in unique ways that are not experienced by the rest of his creation. To those who have been adopted into his family, the father treats us as his children. As theologians have put it, he is good to everyone in some ways, but he is good to some in every way. Psalm 84, 11 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 34, 9 says, Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God's goodness is expressed especially in unique ways in glorious ways to his children, to those who fear him and trust him, those who have believed in his name. This goodness is seen most especially in the gospel. Remember the announcement in Luke chapter four when Jesus was born? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men, goodwill towards those with whom he is pleased, goodwill, God's goodness is being shown in the giving of his son to bring salvation for those that he desires to save. God's goodness is seen in the giving of himself to us, the giving of himself for us. That's the supreme act of love and grace and generosity. There is no gift that is more costly. That's why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Psalm 107, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That steadfast and faithful love that has been shown to us through Christ and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Now this surpassing goodness of God, this goodness that is intrinsic to who he is, this goodness that is manifested in his works, that's not to be confused with a wrong view of God, something that J.I. Packer calls Santa Claus theology. Probably don't have to explain it. You can imagine what that means. Packer describes it as a a view of God where people assume that sins create no problem and atonement becomes needless because God is just sort of nice to everyone. But do not forget that this God's name is to be holy. It is to be hallowed. That his kingdom is coming and it's a kingdom that, yes, brings blessing and salvation for his children, but it's also a kingdom that brings judgment and defeat for his enemies. Don't forget that it is the very goodness of God that actually compels him to oppose evil and to eradicate evil. It's God's goodness that actually compels him to judge wicked men who refuse to worship him and receive his goodness and mercy in Christ. Like C.S. Lewis described Aslan, that lion who's the hero in the story, he is not safe, but he is good. So do not get confused as we uphold the goodness and the mercy and the kindness, the benevolence of God. It's something that as we receive that, we ought to be deeply grateful and in awe because we don't deserve it. And not everyone gets to experience the goodness of God through Christ. That is a unique privilege that is granted to his children alone. Romans 11 balances both of these ideas. In verse, 11, verse 22 of Romans 11, Paul says, Note then the kindness, the goodness, 
but also the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Neither does God's goodness mean that everything will be easy for the Christian. Yes, God is good and kind and benevolent, which means that we can expect him to give us what is good, but sometimes what is good for us doesn't always feel good, does it? Sometimes what is good for us may be difficulty, but the goodness of God means that anything he withholds from us or any difficulty he gives to us, we can be confident that he is good and that he does good and that he knows what is good for us. Psalm 119, verse 71 The psalmist, with wisdom and maturity, recognizes it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The goodness of God doesn't mean that everything is easy. But this is not a sign that our Heavenly Father is cruel. This doesn't mean he's giving us a serpent or a scorpion when what we really need is bread or an egg. In fact, this pain can sometimes actually be the expression of God's love for us. In Hebrews 12, verse 6, it says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. It's for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's important that these texts are familiar to us and precious to us because there's a great temptation we face. There's a great temptation to doubt the goodness of God when life becomes difficult. There's a temptation to doubt the goodness of God when our prayers seem to be unanswered. But rather than put the character of God on trial, rather than accuse him or doubt him, we need to trust that our heavenly father is good. He is not cruel. He is not cold. He is not handing out serpents and scorpions to the children that he loves. If I could quote from Charles Spurgeon one more time, he famously wrote, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, when we don't understand what he's doing, we must trust his heart. That's the goodness of God. And confidence that God is good. This is something that ought to motivate us and compel us to pray. That's why Jesus is bringing up this contrast of earthly fathers and our heavenly father and and an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God really is that good, then we ought to ask. We ought to seek. We ought to keep knocking, believing in the goodness of our God. Confidence in the goodness of God will not only motivate us to pray, but it will also ground us and stabilize us when our prayers go unanswered. 
If God says no to those requests, if God says not yet to those requests, we can be confident that he has a good reason for it because he is surpassingly good. When we consider his goodness, the goodness of our Father in heaven, we begin to understand why it is that Jesus instructs us to pray. We're instructed to pray not because God needs the information, not because he doesn't know. He's omniscient. He knows. We're instructed to pray not because God needs our permission, because he can't do what he wants to do until we pray. It's not because God can't work through other means. That's not why we're instructed to pray. God is the omnipotent sovereign. As the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We're instructed to pray because God is glorified when we trust him, when we love him, when we depend on him. Because when we receive the answers to our prayer, we're experiencing his goodness. We're seeing his goodness on display. And when God's goodness is seen, God's goodness is enjoyed, and God's goodness therefore spurs us to love and to faith and to worship. That's why God calls us to pray. There's a specific gift, a specific answer to prayer that Jesus zooms in on in verse 13. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There is a specific answer to prayer that Jesus has in mind. A specific blessing, a specific expression of God's goodness that Jesus is promising us. And it's the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is one more indication that what Jesus is teaching here is not just issuing some blank check approach to pray, where you pray for anything that might cross your mind and God is sort of like the spiritual Amazon.com who has two-day shipping and it's going to get here and be on your doorstep. That's not the approach to prayer. Rather, this is a promise. It's a guarantee of spiritual provision that God is going to give maybe not all of these other things we ask for, but he's going to give himself. He's going to give him his own spirit to us, which is far greater than any of the things or the circumstances that we may be asking for. The Holy Spirit was given in measure for seasons of ministry during Jesus's lifetime. Remember, he sent out the 12. He gave them a portion of his spirit. He gave them power and authority so that they could cast out demons and heal. He did the same thing for 72 witnesses who were sent out on an itinerant ministry but the fullness of the Holy Spirit would be poured out later. In the opening chapters of the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, we see that the Holy Spirit is poured out not just on the apostles, not just on a select group of witnesses, but on all the believers, everyone who was trusting in Christ. Now in our age today, the Holy Spirit is given to every believer. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ to forgive you of your sins and to save you, you have all of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. By virtue of our salvation, we have been granted the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus saying? Well, this is not a prayer for the baptism of the Spirit. I don't think Jesus is, is instructing them to pray for the gifts of the Spirit necessarily. This is rather a prayer for the presence and the ministry of the Spirit in our life. And this answer, this promise of giving the Holy Spirit is actually the solution to a myriad of prayers that we may pray. 
Think about it. When you ask God to be with you, what is the answer to that prayer? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. When you ask God for comfort, when you are hurting, when you are confused, how is it that God meets that need? By his spirit who is called the comforter. When you ask God for help because you feel weak, because you lack strength, because you, you need something that is outside of yourself, how is it that God ministers to you through his spirit who is called the helper? When you ask God for strength in your weakness, he strengthens you by his spirit, filling you and empowering you to do the things that God is calling you to do. When you ask God for guidance, for understanding, for wisdom, he leads us by his spirit. He illumines the scripture by his spirit. He grants us what the New Testament calls the spirit of wisdom. The Holy Spirit is actually the answer to so many of our needs and so many of our prayers. And Jesus says, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. For those who seek God, he promises to give us everything we need for life and godliness because he is indescribably and incomparably good. So he gives us himself. We have a good father in heaven who loves us, who delights to receive and answer our prayers. We've been given a good and indescribable gift in the son of God who laid down his life to give us eternal life. And we have a good gift in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. The triune God in every sense is manifesting and displaying his goodness to us which means we ought to pray. It is this goodness of God that provides the theological foundation that incentivizes and invites and encourages us to pray. So in conclusion, it's time for a theology exam. It's time for a test. And the first question on the test is this. Do you believe that God answers prayer? You can answer that in your own mind. But that's a doctrinal question. Does God answer prayer? If the answer is yes, then we ought to pray boldly. We ought to pray boldly and ask God. We ought to seek God. We ought to knock on the door and draw near to him with our needs. Our boldness comes from the words of Jesus himself. He tells us to come. That's where our boldness comes from. Not only from his words, but also from his work. We come in Jesus' name when we pray. And that's not just some little Christian phrase we tack on at the end of a prayer. No, we can come to God boldly because of the sacrifice of Christ. We can come to God and ask boldly in the name of Jesus. It's because of him we have the privilege of prayer. He's purchased it for us at the cross. Ephesians 3.12 says, In Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If God is a God who answers prayer, then we ought to be a people who pray boldly. Do not think of God as being hesitant or stingy or being bothered or inconvenienced by your prayer. Come to him with your needs. Ask, seek, knock, and expect that you will receive you will find, and you will be welcomed in. The second theological question for the test, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe in his surpassing goodness? 
Again, if you do, if you believe that God is good, then pray, know that your Father in heaven is surpassingly good. Again, Charnock writes in his book on the existence and attributes of God, what is the reason we come not to him when he calls us, but some secret imagination that he is of an ill nature, that he means not as he speaks, but intends to mock us instead of welcoming us? As it is a disparagement to his wisdom to despise his counsel, so it is to his goodness to slight his offers, as though you could make a better provision for yourself that he is able or willing to do. Charnock is very pastoral to recognize when we don't come to God, can it be that perhaps we are underestimating or disbelieving in his goodness? Far be it from us to question the goodness of God, to underestimate the goodness of God, or to forget the incomparable goodness of God. If earthly fathers are good to their children, how much more will our heavenly father be perfect in his goodness towards us? As those who believe in the gospel, this logic of how much more, this argument from the lesser to the greater, this is something we've grabbed onto at the cross. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the logic of how much more. Do you believe in his goodness? Do you believe in his gospel? Do you believe that God answers prayer? Then pray. May we approach God in prayer with a boldness and an expectancy that is rooted in the conviction this theological conviction that he is incomparably, indescribably, and perfectly good. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we thank you for your incredible goodness towards us. It is not deserved. It is often unappreciated and taken for granted. We are people who have often presumed upon your goodness. And we're also people who have not yet come to understand the depth and magnitude of that goodness. Our thoughts of you are so small. Lord, we confess our unbelief and our doubts. We confess our small thoughts of you, and we ask that you would expand and deepen our understanding of how good you actually are. I pray that we would look to the cross and that the gospel would be gasoline that increases the flame of faith in your goodness. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you today, who may wonder and question whether you are good. Pray that they would consider how every breath is a gift. Each day of life is a gift. Their ability to think and to reason, even the reason that perhaps they have used as a weapon against you, all of that is a gift from you. They bear your image. You've stamped it upon them. Your goodness has been displayed in creation and in their lives. And I pray that they would not only recognize that goodness that is given to all, but I pray they would recognize the goodness of your gift, the goodness of your gospel, that Christ died for sinners that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I pray they would grasp the goodness of that offer and believe. 
Lord, I pray that as we meditate on this incredible truth of your glory and goodness, I pray that it would move us to pray, that we would be a people who are growing in this spiritual discipline, that we would come to you boldly and frequently, that we would come persistently, that we would come humbly and in faith, but also expecting that you are a God who not only commands us to pray, but delights to answer prayer and and promises to answer prayer. Lord, grow our faith, and may we, as a people, as we grow, give you the glory and the honor and the praise that you so richly deserve for your goodness. Amen.